This is ISIS. They are ruthless fighters. ISIS is again threatening the U.S. During the rise of ISIL, the stories almost wrote themselves. It was, if it bleeds, it leads on steroids. A violent new ISIS video celebrating the caliphate. ISIS imposed Islamic Sharia law. Burning a man alive inside of a cage. Tied to a cross and shot in public. That media frenzy was a few years back. Today, there's a new one. ISIL's so-called caliphate is almost gone, but its people are not. Thousands of women and children lived under ISIL, by force, by choice, or by birth. And the world doesn't know what to do with them. And that's who we're talking about today. Not just Westerners making headlines lately, but also women from Iraq and Syria. From the Yazidi community, we're really angry that people want to see these kind of perpetrators and sympathize them. They don't have any evidence against me doing anything dangerous. When I went to Syria, I was just a housewife the entire four years. Media outlets have simultaneously painted a sympathetic picture of these terrorist brides now yearning for their homelands. So do they honestly want us to feel bad for these women? Some of them may well be innocent. Some of them may well be guilty of horrific crime. Until we try them in a court of law, we won't know that. I'm Imtiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. You have to remember, in, in 2013, uh, when they were in Syria, they were simply another group that had taken over territory in Syria. They were, you know, occupying Raqqa. Imran Khan covered much of the rise of ISIL, and he's been reporting on its fall. Just a note, if you haven't already noticed, Al Jazeera calls the group the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIL. But you'll also hear ISIS and Islamic State in this episode. But nobody really took them seriously. And at the time, they weren't called ISIL. They were called, or they called themselves, uh, the Islamic State. But we weren't really sure what that meant. It was just another rallying cry, perhaps. You covered the announcement of the caliphate in Raqqa, in Syria. And the move into Iraq, uh, which was where many of those fighters came from in the first place. I mean, you were in Iraq when they took Mosul, which is the second biggest city in the country. What do you remember from that time? When they went into Mosul, it was horrific. I remember my producer, Sama Mohammed, uh, saying to me, I can't believe this. I cannot believe that the city of generals, which is what Mosul was, uh, was named, um, has fallen. It, there was a collective national shock that something like this was able to happen. People were just fleeing. And you would see ISIL fighters in, uh, in their Land Cruisers um, run, drive down the motorway and pull up to these uh, taxis. And it didn't matter who was inside that taxi. If you were leaving Mosul at the time, they would just open fire. We saw these just absolute brutal videos of just people being shot on the side of the road as they were trying to flee. We were seeing the beginning of something that we'd never seen before. We'd always seen, you'd always understand armed groups through the prism that they were simply attacking the state. The difference with ISIL was is that they acted like a government, they acted like a state. 
they took in money and they would build roads. And that to me was a, a massive change in the way a armed group operated. They certainly were much more sophisticated than any other armed group we've seen. I suddenly realized they'd printed up number plates for cars. So you had Islamic State number plates. That's how sophisticated they got. The fact that they printed up license plates was quite a, a good way of explaining that this wasn't just an ordinary armed group. Tell us about the role of women in the so-called caliphate. What was their purpose and their importance to ISIL? Um, they were there to build homes. They were traded uh, amongst the ISIL fighters themselves. Uh, if a woman was particularly beautiful, there'd be a bidding war over her. There were slave markets where an ISIL fighter, if he had enough money, was able to buy a bride. They are there to be people that are of the Islamic State. And their role in that way is crucial, but their, their role is about number, not about human rights. It's about as many children as, as possible can be born. The role of women was, I mean, uh, against everything that we've ever, that I've certainly ever understood that Islam is to be about. ISIL's rise united much of the world against a common enemy. By June 2014, Russia, the US, the EU, and many Muslim countries joined Iraq in the fight. Those horrifying stories about ISIL's brutality that led the news gave way to the daily grind of reporting a conflict. For months, the Iraqi government has promised a major offensive to retake cities held by the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. ISIL fighters are not just on the border with Turkey, but remain in the cities of Al-Bab and Jarablus. Turkish artillery is targeting ISIL fighters. At least 30 civilians have been killed. More than 100 civilians have been killed. As many as half a million people have been forced to leave their homes. By 2017, the bombings and Kurdish fighters on the ground pushed the group out of Iraq completely, and their territory in Syria was shrinking too. Many ISIL fighters and their families handed themselves over. Now, ISIL is cornered in a town called Baguz. This time, it's Kurdish fighters who are picking them up. Kurds, who have no country of their own, also have no courts or permanent prisons. ISIL, this last remnant of ISIL, has been in this area for a long time. What's specific to this moment that has led to what we're seeing right now? What's specific to this moment is there's, there's nowhere else for them to go now. ISIL, once they lost their territory were shunted all over different areas of Iraq. And, you know, people got them out of Syrian government territory and they said, oh, it's your problem now, you deal with them. But there is now nowhere else for them to go, for these particular hardcore fighters who are in Al-Bahuz. So this is where we're at right now. It's either they surrender or they fight to the last death. And if you look at any kind of ISIL propaganda, you know, they'll say, we are going to fight to the, to the death on this one. And the SDF is also holding a lot of these ISIL fighters in prison. There's a real plea from the Syrian Democratic Forces that uh, they need those fighters to go back to where they came from and they need uh, the countries that they came from to take them back because they simply don't have the space uh, to hold them because they've captured uh, so many of these fighters and so many more have surrendered that they're struggling to just keep them within the prison itself. And the big fear, and Mustafa Bali, who's the spokesman, for the Syrian Democratic Forces said this very clearly. He said, what we're really worried about is so many ISIL fighters so desperate that they're able to overrun the prison guards and escape, and then we're back to square one. 
The SDF uh, has also picked up a lot of other people fleeing from Baguz besides the fighters. Tell us about the women and children coming out of there. We don't know that much about them. Um, we certainly don't know how many people, how many ISIL wives and children are in the camp. The SDF won't give us a number. But the reporting that's been done on it has been driven by Western newspapers who are interviewing Western wives. And that message is very clear. We just want to go home now. One of the very frustrating things for me, particularly as a correspondent, particularly somebody who's trying to report, is that we're not hearing from the Syrians who joined ISIL in that camp, the Iraqis who joined ISIL in that camp. We're not hearing from the women and children of, say, for example, Pakistan or, or Uzbekistan. I want to play a clip for you. Al Jazeera spoke to a woman in Iraq, uh, a woman who married an ISIL fighter, where she's living in a camp in Anbar province. Let's listen. My husband used to fight in Aleppo and he was killed there. ISIL brought us to a hostel which was run by a cruel woman. One woman even gave birth in the toilet, but she wasn't allowed medical help. No one could go outside if they were not married. I married this injured man who needed someone to take care of him. We decided to flee, but the trafficker took us to a Kurdish area. We were arrested. What happens to the women and children of ISIL is a whole other conversation that's only just beginning to happen now. The ISIL uh, wives and, and I've spoken to use the same language. You know, prison is a term that comes up a lot. Islam is not a prison, but they put me in a prison made of Islam, which is what one woman told me. And that tallies with what other people have said as they've left the Islamic State. When we talk about these women connected to ISIL, they're usually discussed as ISIL brides or ISIL wives. Uh, Lots of them say they weren't there by choice. Uh, Others say they were just housewives. They didn't really know what was going on. But there are also plenty of women who played a role themselves. And that comes up most with the Yazidis. They're a religious minority, mostly in northern Iraq, and they were particularly targeted by ISIL. We actually spoke to uh, Pari Ibrahim, uh, an activist who started a foundation to provide support to Yazidis. She lost dozens of members of her own family. Well, we talk with the Yazidi women and girls. They always also talk about ISIS wives, ISIS brides, whatever you want to name them. And there are stories like one of the ISIS wives would uh, put the Yazidi girls in the shower, wash them, put on makeup and uh, clothing. And they were brought to the rooms to get ready so that they could be raped by ISIS uh, fighters. And there are many other stories of Yazidi uh, girls saying that the ISIS wives were even worse than the men. The ISIS wives were the ones that were locking us up in the room. They were beating us, torturing us. And thanks to them, we could not escape because they were holding the keys when the ISIS men were fighting. So, yeah, I do think that a lot of these uh, women have committed crimes against our people. And we should not just give these women a platform where they can just pretend that as if they were the victims. Our people are the victims. They need a voice. The situation of the Yazidis actually is almost unique within uh, the story of the Islamic State itself because they were brutalized by uh, the Islamic State um, because they were simply seen as, as not being Muslim and not therefore being human. They were brutalized. 
you can understand the anger of the Yazidi community, but if you're going to investigate like this woman is demanding, then there needs to be proof, and, and that proof needs to come out. But MTRs, I have to say, we're looking at a decades-long legal process before any of this is really resolved. It's not going to happen overnight. So all of that touches on the huge spectrum of stories and circumstances. Uh, some of the women's stories generate sympathy. Others, it's more like skepticism. Do you think that there's really any way to know where they're coming from or what they actually think? It's a very difficult question to answer. You're, you're trying to get into the, and we all do this, and I, I do this. You, you, you want to get into the mind space of that person and, and find out why they went. Some of them may well be innocent. Some of them may well be guilty of horrific crime. But until we try them in a court of law, we won't know that. Um, but to simply dismiss them because... They are. They went to the Islamic State. Well, we have to ask why they went to the Islamic State in the first place. Now that these ISIL women are trying to return home, people are having this conversation around the world because the people connected to ISIL were from many, many countries. Uh, one in particular, a British woman named Shamima Begum. I never did anything dangerous. I never made propaganda. I never encouraged people to come to Syria. So. I don't really have proof that I did anything that is dangerous. Shamima Begum went to ISIL-held territory in Syria. There was a very famous picture in British newspapers. Uh, she went with two of her friends, and they caught her on CCTV. Uh, and she just looked like an ordinary kid from any kind of urban background uh, in London. She was from Bethnal Green, and she didn't tell her parents. She didn't really speak to anybody. She was effectively groomed online, we're now hearing. I saw all the videos on the internet and that just kind of attracted me to them. Like it attracted a lot of people. And now she's 19 years old. Um, she's clearly gone through some traumatic experiences and when you hear her being interviewed she will say... I didn't know what I was getting into when I left and I just was hoping that maybe for, me, for the sake of me and my child they let me come back because I can't live in this camp forever. And I just want to go home now and I... You know, I have another child. And the British government are playing hardline with her and saying uh, that we're going to try and revoke your citizenship. Now, Begum has made headlines because she's in that camp near Baguz, uh, which we mentioned before, and she's been asking to go home. And that's not what has happened. Let's take a listen to a bit of tape. This is the moment she learns where she's being stripped of her British citizenship. I don't know what to say. I'm not that shocked, but I'm a bit shocked. So I don't know why my case is any different to other people. Or is it just because I was on the news four years ago? It's kind of heartbreaking to read. I, I thought it would... My family made it sound like it would be a lot easier for me to come back to the UK when I was speaking to them in Barros, but it's kind of... It's kind of hard to swallow. I feel like it's a bit unjust on me and my son. You have to understand that I am very much uh, coming at this as a reporter. Information is absolutely crucial. And these people have information that they could share that will shed a light on recruitment and ISIL recruitment. And they should be treated as British citizens. However, if you're an ISIL fighter and you have committed crimes and that can be proven, then clearly you should be subject to the legal process in the country that you go back to, fighter or wife, 
mother, they should come back. They, they, the only way of really not repeating the mistakes of the past is by understanding why they happened in the first place. But on a personal level, I, it does anger me that a, a country like Britain that has provided opportunities for immigrants and for the sons and daughters of immigrants like myself, um, that people have rejected it. But I do understand why. I mean, I understand the racism in Britain. I understand uh, being disenfranchised. I get all of that. I, I, you know, a lot of those kind of things happened to me when I was growing up. Let's keep aside what she did, that she went to the Islamic State and, and all of that. The legal precedent this sets is incredibly concerning to me. She doesn't have dual nationality. She doesn't have a Bangladeshi passport. And what the British government is saying is actually your parents were Bangladeshi. So therefore, you could effectively get Bangladeshi citizenship through your parents. And for somebody like, when I say somebody like me, that is my parents. My mother and father emigrated uh, to the UK and they were from Pakistan. So this is in effect creating a second class of citizenship in the UK. Um, and that's, I know that's a very strong statement, but uh, uh, something like this I do feel very strongly about. And uh, I'm offering a personal opinion here rather than a professional one. I'm so angry about all of this. Um, if she had done anything wrong, bring her back, put her through a court case. Let's hear the law. I have no problems with that. I'm not saying she should be welcomed with open arms at the airport. That is an incredible concern to me. And that is a, a move that I think I didn't think I would ever see and should be much more concerning to, to anybody that cares about human rights. So that's the UK. What about everyone else? Human Rights Watch estimates 3,000 women and children from over 40 countries are still detained across Iraq, Northeast Syria, and Libya. Many have no charges against them. Only a few countries, Germany, Uzbekistan, Russia, actually have a plan for how to repatriate their citizens and rehabilitate them. Some have already gone home. But most countries are just dragging their feet, like the UK, like the US, and also many Arab countries, where large numbers of ISIL members and their families are from. There's an argument that foreign fighters and their families should be tried where they committed the crimes. In Iraq, that's what's happening. But these trials often take less than 10 minutes. Dozens of foreigners have been sentenced to death or life in prison. Their governments are not clamoring for an appeal. We've been talking about a very dark time for Syria and Iraq. We started this interview talking about your first memories of the rise of ISIL. What about now? I was last in Iraq in uh, December. I actually spent Christmas and New Year in Iraq. I used to have to stay in the bureau itself because it was simply too dangerous to move around Baghdad. It was a very, very difficult place to be a journalist in because of the amount of car bombs. Um, I now checked into a hotel. I walked out of the hotel walked onto Sardoun Street, uh, met a friend of mine uh, for coffee and a shisha. I didn't have any security around me, I didn't have an armoured car, I didn't have anything that we, the kind of things that we'd had in the past. Uh, there wasn't a curfew, and my friend and I chatted Iraqi politics and, and music and life and, and just had this wonderful couple of hours 
where it felt like we were in a normal city. That, for me, is a magical moment, a pivotal moment in, in believing things can actually get better. Because in Baghdad, they have. In other parts of Iraq, they have. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Morgan Waters, Priyanka Tilve, Jasmine Bayumi, Ney Alvarez, Dina Hezbe, and me, Imtiaz Tayeb. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Graylin Bashir is the show's lead producer. Special thanks to Imran Khan, Rebecca Collard, and Pari Ibrahim. <laughs>